0: Begin transmission. Transmission. The Frontline Gaming Network presents Art of War. Strategy and tactics. Discussions with the best players on the planet. The Frontline Gaming Network. Presenting Art of War with Nick Nanavati and John Damaris.
1: Hello and welcome to the Art of War podcast. I'm your host, John Damaris, and today joining us on the show is none other than the Archon himself, Skari, from the frozen wastes of Canada, is going to come to talk to us about Ninth edition and Jukari. It should be a great discussion. But before we get there, let me guys let me tell you guys about the Frontline Gaming Network. Hopefully you're listening to us there right now. But if you're not, you definitely should go check it out because there is a ton of great competitively focused podcast on the frontline gaming network. And with the the impending launch of ninth, there's a lot of plans for a lot of good content to be coming out there. So you want to go subscribe now. So you're ready to go once ninth hits. Okay. Joining me as always is the one and only Nick, as somebody on my stream said the other day, not which I kind of liked, uh, to, to talk all things 40 K. He's an expert in the subject has been playing. I don't know, since he was like a prodigy at, I don't know, six or something, who knows? And he's going to, you know, Basically, help us break down all the different internet uh, rules, interactions, and intricacies of playing top level forty k. Nick, why don't you go ahead and introduce Scary, and then we'll get into our discussion.
2: Yes, John. I think you should refer to me as Nick Nanahadi for the rest of forever, and until you do, I won't respond to you anymore. So just keep that in mind as we move forward with this podcast. But I would like to introduce my fellow coach on the Art of War team and friend, Riddvan Martinez, or as many of you may know him instead as Archon Scari. He is joining us today from the frozen north that is Canada. I'm sure it's still frozen as we speak to talk about his thoughts on ninth edition. Um, he's kind of one of those veteran players who survived many edition changes and has done so with dark, dark Eldar forever. Um, so we're in part one, we're going to go over which direction kind of like roundtable discussion. We think ninth edition is headed and what's going to be good there and what his thoughts are on the changes that we know of. And then in part two, we'll talk about how he's going to adapt his dark Eldar to the upcoming ninth edition. So, Ridbin, why don't you go ahead and say hi to everybody?
3: Hi, everyone. And it's not cold in Canada right now. It's very hot and humid. Just wanted to put that out there. I just don't believe you. Yep. Well, it's okay, Mr. Nana Hottie. Mm, I like that. <laughs> but thank you for the uh, kind introduction. Looking forward to discussing some Dark Eldar stuff in Ninth edition.
2: Always. So, just to kind of give a recap, why don't we talk about the changes that we know for ninth and then how systematically approach them one by one how you think that what they think they're going to mean for the game so i think the biggest change that we're all looking forward to the most is basically the fact that points across across the game are going to go up um we don't know how much and we don't know if it's going to be just everything in the game gets raised 10 percent, 20 percent, or if it's kind of unit by unit i'm sure it's unit by unit to some degree how do you feel about the game just increasing in points right there
3: I'm a huge fan of um, the game going to less models, personally. I've always thought that you know playing around um, 1,500 points has usually been the most entertaining point level for me. I find that it really forces players to make hard choices when it comes to unit selection. Um, you can't take all the toys at 1,500 points which means you, you sort of have to make some hard choices when building those lists, especially when trying to build a take-all-comers list that can deal with a variety of different scenarios or mission formats or, or meta lists. So going into less or making everything more expensive just means you're taking less models, which then means you're probably going to have to make uh, a more educated choice on what you want to add into your list based on like the, the variety of, of ninth edition.
2: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Just the fundamentally having fewer models is what I'm looking forward to. The games will finish faster, which makes it more accessible to new players, lowers that barrier to entry. Also makes it less daunting. People ask me all the time, like how long does it take to play 40K? People who haven't played 40K before. And I optimistically answer two hours, but I'm not thrilled about that answer either. I would love to say like hour and a half, easy. And then that's a very attractive game length time as opposed to like the reality of it, which is sometimes it takes three and that's no one wants to sit down and play a game for three hours.
3: Well, no one at a tournament. However, when you're sitting down and playing with friends and just having a good time, like an hour-long game takes four hours because you're just chatting and shooting the shit. Definitely, definitely.
1: And I think one thing that's worth noting is a shorter game time helps us all at events, too. Because I don't know if you guys have had this experience, but I certainly have. You're trying to like find time to use the restroom, find time to grab something to eat or whatever. And it can be very difficult because, you know, if your game goes a little bit long and, and you know, if we, if we take, let's say, I'm just going to make a number up. Let's say the average game length at a tournament is three hours and we take it down to two and a half hours. That gives you a lot more time in between rounds or at least a lot more time to like find time for yourself during a tournament day, if that makes sense. So I think it'll make those tournaments a little less uh, overwhelming. I don't know. Is that a good word for it? yeah definitely at least so intense
2: as a schedule and routine um i'd also like to point out that it makes going to tournaments a lot easier especially as 40k grows and as more people play which is ultimately the goal for all of us here um more people want to attend tournaments so tournaments can either increase in size and not increase in rounds which will suck because we have things like the london gt where we have 25 people who are undefeated at the end of it um or we increase the number of rounds which is great but there's only so many hours in a day so it gets from a two-day event to a three-day event to a four-day event and then we're talking week-long tournaments and people that's a big barrier to going you know like people have work and stuff so being able to cram more rounds within a given day one it will be easier and not leave you feeling like you're dead i've played iron man's and nova invitations where i play five games of 40k in one day and believe me that's a death sentence so i'm very much a fan of shorter round times for that reason and
3: also just making the tournament more um logistically feasible Oh, one hundred percent. I think less amount of time uh, just really not only that but it'll help us maybe even if we do give players more time than needed it means that you have more time on the chess clock you can take more time thinking or you can just fit more times uh, more rounds into a day you know and and for a big like if you want to take an event to a bigger level and have more people to have an undefeated player it's 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 just it's just good all round
2: yeah and to that end do you think the new table size do you think that'll be adopted by events and then accepted by the community and then two do you think that'll help go hand in hand with shorter t- game times and whatnot
3: yes i 100 percent think so i played i've played a couple of games on the new game size mat now and it's a very you won't really notice it uh when you get used to it it's just gonna make the games go in get down and dirty a lot faster but um at the end of the day it's logistically good for events and and at the same time i think it'll it'll change some of the meta lists that we're seeing out there uh but we'll see how ninth edition kind of shapes that
2: yeah i, I probably also played a couple of games actually on our twitch channel twitch.tv slash aow40k and in our war room coaching games we've all adopted the new table size and it's really put an emphasis on the play style of board control we find like if you're trying to really take the objectives especially if you take it with respect to the one mission we've seen released so far which has progressive scoring as the only way of holding objectives that plus the secondaries which will probably be maneuver based something like recon wouldn't be unreasonable at all or behind enemy lines that's where having a durable army that can just march in the middle table and box around with your opponent as opposed to like an eldar air force that plays the extreme edges of the zone of the board that doesn't really work as well. The the edges of the table just aren't far enough away from your opponent anymore. There's not enough space to hide and run around. That's one thing I've noticed while playing it.
1: You know, it's interesting. Do you guys think that the smaller table size will lead to a bigger alpha strike meta? Or do you think the changes in terrain and the changes in deployment options, i.e. the outflanking and deep striking options or you know, stuff coming on the back table edge for CPs that we're getting uh, that applies to all units We'll actually change it so that it's less alpha strikey than Eighth Edition was. I think there'll still be some
3: alpha strikey elements to the game. You know, people are going to have to have screens and be able to deal with stuff that can just get to you in close combat. You turn one, which I think is going to be probably a lot more prevalent than people shooting you off the board turn one. So we'll we'll kind of I, I, it'll. Time will tell, but I think that there's going to be an inherent shift in a lot of the main meta narratives that we've seen develop through 8th edition.
2: If the amount of terrain per table stays the same, but the amount of table space square inches just decreases, that creates a lot more terrain density. So that comes with terrain rules like the, the ruin rule that we just saw last week to make things unshootable as long as they're below 18 wounds and behind a five inch tall ruin. That's huge, because you can hide things like bloodthirsters and fly rents and whatnot, where you wouldn't otherwise be able to. So I think alpha striking through guns will be harder to pull off, and there will be an emphasis on indirect fire, which we talked about last week with John Lennon on the show. But who knows? Maybe indirect fire will be made up for and really get a point sock so it won't be the be-all, end-all going into ninth edition. Um, and then like Scary said, because guns will have a harder time seeing things... There might be an increased value to close combat and speed and things like that, which will force you to also want to have screens, one to block out your opponent through, here's my bodies, you have to go through them to get to the good stuff. And also, like you said, John, with all the outflanking being just a thing that we can do now, it seems based on the one flyer rule that was also previewed that regular reserves will still have to maintain that nine inch away rule. I'm just kind of inferring here based on what they wrote. but nine inches away on these shorter tables we found is really hard to do because while you, it's not physically impossible to shut it up don't get me wrong against most armies it's it's a lot easier for your opponent to screen out so i think there's gonna be a bigger emphasis on screening units in general
3: well screening units or for example i know i know you nick have have like been on the receiving end of me screening out the whole table with multiple small units and and i feel that 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 that, in that sense you will notice a smaller table when you can literally grab a variety of smaller units and block off the entire table from deep strikers
2: i actually played a game against john who was trying out his uh gene circle which he adapted for ninth edition we talked about that last week on the podcast uh just this sunday and he's trying to run his eighth edition points of course but ninth edition style gsc list and he has really reduced the amount of deep striking his gene circle list does, which is crazy when you think of how Gene Circle traditionally play. But it's for that reason. He's like, it's too easy to just block out the whole table. And if that's your strategy, Gene Circle will skip blocked out entirely. And that's you're gonna lose. Yeah. So that's
1: that's a question then. Do you guys think that they'll change sort of the core deep strike or I guess coming in from reserves roles and maybe they'll go past turn three? Because it's easier to zone out the table, maybe they'll give you more latitude to come in later in the game.
2: It, it's definitely possible, John, and they they alluded to that in their first uh, one of their first previews. Not specifically in rules, but their verbiage was basically, "Reserves will get more powerful the longer you wait and keep them in reserve." Which makes me feel like, well, if I can, my options are turn two or turn three. It's not like that's really. You know it's one or the other. It's not like a reward for patience kind of thing.
3: I think they'll um, um bring back the whole uh deep strike turn one from your deployment zone and then deep strike turn two from your deployment zone and the two side edges, deep strike turn three from any edge.
2: That could be a really interesting thing for a generic stratagem. I yeah. can see that. Yeah, yeah. And that's that you can use the deep strike rules, and very few people will be able to block out your own zone by turn one. Should you go second, so you, if you see it coming, you can still adapt to it. But against the people who don't have that kind of mobility and MSU type of style, you might actually get legitimate value to it by showing up behind them without flanking, especially against like knights or something, for example.
1: Yeah, exactly. also, I mean, They they could also change the rules a little bit and say that you can come in on a board edge, and you can come in, you know, within three inches or six inches of an enemy model. But you can't charge, right? It's
2: possible, yeah. So I was yeah. holding out before making any assumptions there. The only reason I'm I'm kind of assuming it's nine inches, which we don't know for sure, is because the flyer rule, what we guys previewed, said that a flyer returning to the battlefield, which is you know, flyers can now fly off the battlefield, um, it does so still has to be nine inches away from the enemy, which to me implies that regular reserves also have to be nine from the enemy. But you're absolutely right; we there might be stipulations to that or exceptions.
1: Yeah, it's just interesting because, you know, the changing of the board size changes so many of the assumptions or, I guess, so many of the parameters that were used to determine deep strike rules, you know, deployment rules, all that stuff. So all of that can be affected in some way. So it's just a matter of how they decided to address all those things. So it'll be interesting to see how, they, how it all shakes out because we don't actually know right now. We just have speculation, right?
2: Um, yeah, so... How do you feel about the new terrain
1: rules? I think that's the most
2: controversial change. I know a lot of people were, oh, there's leftists and rightists as far as board size goes. It'll be adopted. It won't be adopted. The sky's falling. This is just cool change. Mm-hmm. Uh, regardless of how people feel about it, I'm pretty sure it's just going to happen. And like Scary said, you're going to get used to it. And by the time you get used to it, you won't even know, remember that there was an older board. The terrain rules, though, are very polarizing, it seems. Um, how do you guys feel about these?
3: I've always been a fan of having a lot more control over what you're doing before the game starts, or you know you know that in that sort of period of time when you start setting up the game where y- there's no dice rolling involved right and and that gives you a lot of control over to dictate some of the pace of the game right off the get go so if in match play you know at least what they've been hinting at is that the, you're going to be putting objectives down first, then setting down terrain and organizing the terrain. You know, and if that becomes part of a general game strategy, you know, I really think that there's going to be a lot of value in really dissecting, you know, what keywords to give to what pieces of terrain based on where they're placed. You know, maybe maybe tournaments will like you know, dictate the like set terrain, and then all we have to do is put down. Like keywords and whatnot. Like time will tell how this will affect the game, but it's clear that Games Workshop wants the terrain to have a higher impact on the game itself. But as a general, being able to sort of pick and choose where, like the line of sight blocker goes, or you know, is it guaranteed that I will have a line of sight blocker in my deployment zone regardless of the mission? Regard, like, can I make it happen? If so, it all of a sudden you know adds in all these other tactical options just based on the terrain, nothing to do with who your opponent is, what the mission is. It's, well, I'd love to bring my Bloodthirster, but every time I put him on the table, he gets blown off the table turn one. And I don't really want to deep strike him because then you know I'm spending all these command points, et cetera, et cetera, right? Whereas if you say, I can guarantee that I can put a line of sight blocker that's obscuring in my deployment zone, I can hide my Bloodthirster turn one Every game, which means he cannot get shot off the board turn one, you know, and,
1: Absolutely. you know, I've and, got a question. I've, I, I have to jump in here. Do you guys like true line of sight rules? Answer that first and then let me follow up. Personally, is- no,
3: I, I really don't at all. I
1: Neither
3: like it. Know. It's simple. It's just, if you can see it, you can shoot it. Uh, they did say, uh, on the GW streams, true line of sight is still going to be the norm for the game.
2: The reason I don't like it is because I don't want anything to disincentivize me from making my models in cool poses or doing, going the extra miles and modeler and hobbyist. And that's crazy going for me. But think like, not even just like crazy conversions. Like, I'm going to make my DM print standing on a tall building. I own one of those. Or I'm going to make a DM with giant wings. I own one of those too. You know? That's terrible for me. Um, let's use a flyer as a better example because it's above nine wounds. So you can shoot it. Prince, you can kind of just, it's not a care. It's a character. So it's not a big deal. But it disincentivizes you from doing stuff. But even little things like custodies players. When you buy that custodies bike kit, you have a choice with your lances, up or down. Every competitive forty k player will tell you down is better. Now you have a choice. Like I don't want them all to be down. That's lame. I'm just have some sticking up in the air to give like my unit is marching to battle or whatever. But now the unit is four inches taller, which makes it very, very impossible to hide. At least in current true on the site rules. And I hate that aspect of the game. I don't want to be punished for taking, for modeling my models.
1: Okay. Well, I'm going to say my piece for just a second here. As you guys know, I played, and I say this every week, and I probably shouldn't, but I played at the highest levels in competitive play for War Machine and Horns. And in that game, everything was geometry. So every base size had a volume, right? Or a standard height. And you just drew a line from your base to your opponent's base. Everything was done base to base. And then based on, you know, what was between you and them. So terrain had standard heights. So it was it was very mathematical. And so line of sight was never an argument. And it was always super quick. So it made the game so much faster. And it just, it made total sense. I really hate it when you're like going back and forth with your opponent. And you're like, well, I think I can see the back foot of your Thunderfire cannon From the tip of this wing, if you come over and they're like, I don't, I
2: don't. Literally been shot by my thunderfire hands back foot from a tip of an Eldar flyer wing. That resonated so real with me.
1: I know because I remember I was talking about that one time. But but anyway, uh, beside the point, like that's a negative play experience. It causes a lot of like wasted time in the game. It makes the game take longer. Not that often, but it can. And you could just have literal modern rules around line of sight. So anything that takes us. Any bit away from true line of sight, I'm a fan of. So even just the abstracting rules, I'm a big fan of, because now we have some things that just take that off the table. Like, oh, I'm behind this. Okay, I can't draw a millimeter thick line between these two models, so I'm good. Uh, that doesn't cross, you know, and then, then there's no argument about it, or almost no argument. Um, so I, I actually love the new train rules, and I hope that it's,
2: well, I also like that it's wound-based, not size-of-model-based. Because size-of-model is fairly arbitrary in this game. Like I said, the custodians with his lance up or the custodians with his lance down is four inches taller or shorter based on that. But wound-based, that is a direct translation to your rules, your what you are in the game. So they picked 18 as the wound bracket for obscuring terrain blocking, let us say it or not. That means Magnus Morty and anything larger as far as wounds are concerned, not actual size-of-model are going to be targetable. That means anything less will be untargetable. So that's a very conscious decision to make things like Bloodthirsters and flyers untargetable behind a wall, which will make those units a lot more playable right now when when's the last time you saw a Bloodthirster hit the table in 8th edition competitively? That's what I thought. So I'm a big fan of them being aligned with their idea. It's The size of the model physically doesn't really have... Anything to do with the competitive aspect of the game mechanically, so f- translating the size to a wound ratio and then using the wound ratio as a breakpoint, I think that's a much better system because it's all speaking one language, if that makes sense. I've
3: okay, played so that- uh, I played in editions like since third edition, so I i love the like back in I think fourth or fifth edition where it was like different terrain at different sizes and it blocked different units that were different sizes and it was a very abstract system but it did give itself well to tournament play so i like true line of sight from a perspective of i just want to play a game i'm going to play against you pick up and you just put stuff on the table if you can see it you can shoot it and that's it but from a competitive standpoint yes i will agree you need to have more abstract style rules that make it a lot there's a lot less gray area. And, and when you're trying to create a competitive game, you know, that gray area is where, you know, all the disagreements happen a lot of the times, you know, a lot of the times it's not whether or not the, the tournament or the judge rules it one way or the other is as long as the ruling is clear, then players adapt to that ruling instead of like leaving it gray, right? And that's where like true line of sight comes into play.
1: Right, now, right. I I will say the thing that most excites me about the new terrain rules is that we're gonna have some differentiation in terrain, which I think is great because right now it's sort of like uh, terrain does almost nothing till it doesn't. You know what I mean? Like it's either like, there's a, a, what's that? Oh, no, I was um, gonna yeah yeah. It's it's just like either a ginormous wall that blocks line of sight or it doesn't exist. Um, or I guess maybe it's minus two to your charges. Well,
3: it did force events as well to sort of create terrain that fit the rules, right? So in this sense, what you've done is you've taken, you've given agency to the player to sort of create the terrain, whatever the terrain is, into something that they can use instead of relying on an event building L's and big line of sight blockers and whatnot. So you just don't, Completely tabled by you know the opponent's Tau army,
2: right? There's, like in eighth edition. Currently, it's basically if you're if you have ruins that block line of sight, you, like giant L-shaped ruins. All right, you have terrain. If you go to your local game store and they just happen to have a couple edition hills forests, edition and flat and forest with a couple and of jungle th-
3: trees on there. Or kind whatever. Of so guilty of this, yeah. they've
2: done they've done their due diligence to try to step it up. Or at least they've been working at it, but they haven't really 180 their terrain since fifth edition and. We are approaching ninth. Really the, the ages have yeah. done work on them. And you can see like a lot of people just say Adepticon doesn't have terrain because while they have lots of terrain, none of it does anything because eighth edition terrain set rules didn't exist.
1: I mean, you can even you can even say like if you bought the GW like sector Imperialis Imperialis kits, they're beautiful, right? Or they uh I don't, I, don't, I don't there's lots of different kits that they have, but all of their blocking line of sight terrain has windows in it. And so you're just like, oh, actually, I can see you right through this window. Uh, oh, yeah. So what does this terrain do? I, like, I guess it's giving me cover. I mean, but it's not really that impactful to the game, right? So Yeah.
2: I'm, so I, I agree completely. I love that there's going to be at least rules to make whatever terrain you have functional. And then on top of that, degrees to terrain so it's not all just binary. I can see you or I can't see you, which is all 8th edition is right now.
1: I also like the idea of getting a plus one to cover save in combat in heavy terrain.
2: That's a really interesting one. Let's talk about that.
1: I, yeah. We've
2: never seen combat or terrain effect combat as far as a save or hit modifier or anything like that. And it's always been slowing to your charges or it used to be fight last back in the day.
3: Um, never a save buff. Do you th- how do you think that's going to impact certain units? Well, it, it's something that's been seen in Age of Sigmar before, for example. So, you know, some players out there will kind of understand that sort of dynamic. Uh, it does mean that if you have a unit that wants to charge and, say, clear out an enemy unit, like you imagine uh, a unit of Bulgrin with a bunch of shields sitting in like cover, being able to get a cover save, not only from shooting, but also in combat. It's going to take a, a lot more of a dedicated push to try and clear them out of a, of a position that they've sort of like hunkered down into. You know, so I think it, it gives value to terrain pieces in the sense that if you put a, say, a bully unit in a position where they can hold that position from not only shooting, but also close combat pushes, you know, it, it creates an anchor that you can use tactically for for the game itself. I think it just adds a whole other layer to how we use terrain. You know, and they're like, I think they've, they're, they've, uh, you know, declared, or they've sort of shown off, I think it's like, six, I have, I have seven or eight, was it eight different sort of traits that they'll be using for terrain? Um, so you've got exposed position, defensible, scalable, breachable, unstable, light cover, dense cover, obscuring or heavy cover. Sorry, you know, as well as garrison, garrisonable or whatever. So Did you there's. Just list that off of memory. Uh, no, I have a piece of paper right here. Oh, okay. um, and, uh, <laughs> no, I, I do, I, I did like, a I've been doing weekly reviews of, of what GW has been releasing, but it's fun how you can compile information that over the course of many days and put it all in one spot. Uh, but all of these different traits, right. They've called them terrain traits, right. Um, they are going to have a big impact on how terrain affects your army so think that out of all the things that come from ninth edition one of the first things you should do is probably take a look at like the point changes and how that affects your list but secondly take a look at what terrain traits will be the best for your army or what terrain traits you can really use to your advantage or what terrain traits are going to be hard for you to deal with and then find a way to either you know stack that bonus into your in in your favor or find ways to mitigate things that are going to be harder for you to deal with
1: do you guys think that i mean already a lot of the game revolves around terrain at times right do you think that the terrain will cause more interesting dynamic situations to develop in the game because of the variability in it and because of like um I think that
2: largely depends on
1: how much terrain is a known
2: factor. Right now, different tournaments have different cultures about terrain. So LGT, Pro Tabletop, great examples. Every single table at those two events was known to the exact millimeter that you'd have terrain. You'd have a ruin of this dimension and this height in this exact place on every single table. And they did that for every piece of terrain on every table. Then you have things like Nova and LVO, um, where LVO's top 100 tables and Nova, by and large, basically copied uh, you know, this is more or less what you're going to expect to see two L shaped pieces. Depending on what table you get, it'll be slightly taller, slightly shorter, slightly wider, whatever. It's two big L's, two big ruins, two big hills in the corners. Those hills might vary in size, the ruins might vary in size, but they're there. You know, they're there. So, and then there's the types of terrain tournaments where it's just like you show up, you get assigned a table, that's what you're playing on. Who knows? And I think if you. The further and further you go down to the pro tabletop LGT style of event, where it's like these are the exact dimensions, the more you can plan for it. I, and this is what Scott was saying earlier. at Pro tabletop this year, I literally designed the list for their dimensions and their terrain. My entire Iron Hands Brigade fit behind the l corner deployment zone. Everything that I, I either put it in reserve or fit behind that ruin, that was by design. I had a Scorpius and two Thunderfires because there was a lot of line of sight blocking. Everything there was calculated before I even got to the event. At Nova and, LGT- and LVO, not everything is calculated in my list design to those dimensions, but it's like, okay, I know I have a line of sight blocking piece in my deployment zone, or I know I dealt, so I can now take these units or omit these units. These units are more powerful. And in a crapshoot type of thing, that's where I'll specifically type take a list that doesn't give a crap what the terrain is. For example, orcs right now, total horror army has no business hiding anywhere if there's a lot of terrain i'll punch my problems away if there's not a lot of terrain i'll just shoot my problems away and then punch them away doesn't matter it works for one of those armies that just couldn't care less about what the terrain is currently so it really depending on what tournaments have to standardize as part of their culture that's going to be a huge factor in what you take to the tournament
3: and it just shows that as a player you know or your understanding how that impacts your list is going to be a big part of that that process
2: definitely and i think the the new rules and the new interactions the small things are the devil's in the details here obviously there's the there's the easy to spot things like a bloodthirster hiding behind a wall that's gonna that's first thing i thought of when i saw these iterations.
3: you know i thought but, i said tantalus please and then i saw 18 wounds and i was like i'm sad <laughs> yeah
2: exactly but then also Let's think about it in other terms, something like a unit of three of save intercessors, just a squad of 10 intercessors, standing in one of these, I don't know, fortified spots, whatever the magic word is, heavy cover, that lets you get plus one save in combat. Now you're playing against an army like orcs, 10,000 attacks, no AP, this by death by armor save. Versus three up saves, that's very achievable, you will roll a bunch of ones and twos. Versus two upsaves, it's so much more brutal. You're not going to roll that many ones. It's just ones are hard to fish for when you're trying to beat Terminators to Death World work. So believe me, I played them. Same with it. So just ten intercessors in cover, in heavy cover rather, fighting a horde army that doesn't have AP and relying on volume of fire of weight of attacks to get the job done, all of a sudden that's not going to be an interaction in favor of that horde army anymore. So you're going to have to adjust your planning like that.
1: Yeah, I think it's, it sort of illustrates how powerful marine doctrines are, right? Just that minus one in assault phase changes that math completely, um, and so I wonder if there'll be more bonuses for other factions as we go across time, like we see for marines, for being you know mono faction so to speak.
2: Yeah, and that's that brings us to the disaster rules too. Great transition there. Um, so we don't know how CP and everything's going to work. We know there's a command phase, and you getting one CP at the start of every command phase and we know that your first detachment is free the one your warlord is from and then every other detachment after that you have to buy i imagine that buying things like vanguards and supreme commands and spearhead detachments are going to cost a hefty amount of cp i'm guessing 3 i could be off as I'm much as a battalion three. it could be a, it could be 5 and you know and like mm, maybe true. secondary battalions don't cost as much but if they're from a different faction they cost more i have no idea but i think you're going to see a lot more Battalion plus one other type of detachment type armies, yep. or like one brigade is one giant detachment. That's eight. I don't think you're going to see like a uh, battalion of Space Marines, a battalion of an Admech, and a spearhead of Imperial Fists. I just don't think you'll see
3: that anymore. Unless you don't need any command points to start with, and by turn four, you just need four command points to do your mega combo.
2: That's true. That's true. There's, I mean, we'll have to wait and see what the actual rules are, but I expect that to be the direction that armies are shifting. And then you can see it in things like War of the Spider. They're making armies like Death Guard a viable mono faction, which is great because Chaos right now is a super faction. definitely want to spread their buffs across five different codexes. Yep. Um, so being able to play them as a mono faction, Admech looking good as a monofaction, These more recent armies are getting love like that.
1: The other thing that's great about mono faction armies is it will create list diversity in what is good and competitive. And let me explain that for just a quick second. Basically, if you're using multiple uh, factions codexes, you end up getting a lot more homogenized lists. So, for example, every Imperial Soup list uh, probably has thought about, if not put in, the Imperial Fist uh, artillery detachment, right? Because it ignores cover. It's very efficient. It's very cheap. Um, And so the more then a lot of Imperial soup lists sort, sort of start homogenizing and becoming more like each other because pe- as people figure out, you know, the best things to use and maybe there's a little diversity, but
2: yeah, we're like every chaos list ever runs arm on and two princes. In the yeah, Supreme
1: exactly. And and you see that kind of thing happen as we go across time where, you know, things become sort of standardized, you know, uh, blood angel smash captains, right? Like that became sort of a standard attachment uh, at one time. Um, but, Now, with this focus on mono builds, it means, number one, lists will have a little bit less raw power, but more CP to play with, so they might be on even playing fields. Um, So it should open up more things to be in that same competitive mix, because now you're not competing with the most efficient stuff from three codexes, you're competing with the most efficient stuff from one codex. Does that make sense?
3: No, it makes makes 100% sense and I think it it's also going to breathe a lot of life into armies like Custodes for example where you know they couldn't really use a lot of their stratagems because unless they ran the loyal 32 or you know unless they ran a bunch of stuff that that kind of helped them or like their a battalion for them was what 700 points or something like a basic battalion which meant that it was very it was unviable but now with the amount of command points they have custodians have some really cool niche stratagems and things that, that are like really cool and being able to have the command boys to use all these really cool little things to keep their very elite guys alive is going to really change the way that that faction works in general because they they don't have to take that 32 guardsmen that are really squishy and uh, that have to sit on objectives to kind of get cp
1: can I can I just say, though, I'm not about that many Tanglefoots, just for the record. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be really annoying. <laughs> it's going to be super annoying. Unlimited Tanglefoots? Oh, my God. Get out of here.
3: <laughs> it's per phase, too, right? So you can be like, <laughs> move a phase. Tag you. Yeah, shoot uh, a phase. John tag London, you. That's really,
2: really <laughs> I, I started my Aberrant's eight inches away from custodies, and I almost failed that charge because <laughs> he just used it twice on me.
3: Yeah.
1: But but you're absolutely right. There's uh, I mean, there's just all kinds of, of factions that become instantly more viable because they didn't really have a good way to like you said build out um to multiple battalions because they didn't have a cheap troop choice that was any good like you know gray knights were a good example at one time um custodies is the golden poster boys for that so it's we're gonna open up list design in allowing people to play <clears throat> more elite armies uh which will still have an issue with board control right because you can't be in as many places which will be difficult but uh, it will also open up mono-faction armies, so I think what we'll, we're going to see is more diversity at the top of the meta, and we're going to see an ever-changing meta because things will come and go pretty quickly. I think it's going to move very fast, and I think that's very exciting.
2: Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I also wonder we are talking about as if monofaction is the only way to play forty K right now. I don't think that's gonna be the case. There's going to be a lot of merits team mixing codexes and, and mixing factions and stuff. I assume they won't just remove that completely as an option um from a viability standpoint. So you'll see a lot of players you'll see a lot of debate being that like a half sisters, half space marine army is totally different than a pure space marine army, for example, and it's functionality and style. So, even though you're running, I mean, 1100 points of the same stuff, the 900 points different make it two very different armies in both play style and how it's used on the table. One gets doctrines, for example, the other doesn't. It's going to be really interesting having those debates about which style is better, monofactual or not monofactual.
3: Yeah. And I think if you do, if you decide to you know, take a soup, there'll be a very good reason that you're taking that soup. And it's not just going to be, oh, because that's the best thing to take. It's going to be like, I need this combo, you know, <laughs> like to happen. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. the only way I know how to play the game, et cetera, et cetera.
1: So, Query, do you think they'll reverse any of the decisions that they've made for 8th edition uh, with all these changes? Like, for example, one that springs to mind for me that's especially relevant for Scari is, will the Eldari stuff still, cons- you know, all the changes they made to their, their uh, psychic powers maybe be undone? With some of these changes or do you think that that's kind of a permanent no i
3: think i think i think that's that's a very they they seem to have really learned from that whole inari stuff to (laughs) to um really create a very like compartmentalized like you know a compartmentalized like um uh codex format where you know you can have like cool combinations with certain things like assassins or inquisitors or things that are supposed to sort of like mix in but when you're like with your faction like with inari you know you have inari strats that affect inari units and you have in like Azuriani psychic powers and stuff that affects in uh, Azuriani stuff so craft worlds you have drukari things that affect specifically drukari, and Harlequins that affect specifically Harlequins so I, I don't I think that they've learned and they kind of wanted to make sure that you can't just like mix and match to get ultimate combos
2: yeah I think they're going to err on the side of caution more so than retroactively going back and undoing those things now I think you might be onto something that they are undoing some of the thoughts they've in ninth like Scar, you said earlier, they might bring back turn 1 reserves. They might go past turn 3 reserves. We're already seeing a flip in Mindset on command points. Rather than taking detachments to gain you command points, you now use your command points to buy detachments. Complete 180 on the process. But specifically for your example there, I I don't see, like, Doom affecting dark LR units.
1: (laughs) Wah-wah. So let's let's talk. So we've talked about a lot of things, and we've kind of talked about how the, the board size is shrinking, Missions are changing, which we haven't got into too much, but um, point sizes or point amounts are changing for things, uh, more access to stratagems. So you put all of those pieces together, and what do you guys think are going to be important for competitive lists in ninth edition? Oh, we didn't talk about tanks. We probably should talk about tanks. We should talk about tanks.
3: Boom, boom,
2: boom, boom. I just played a game on our Twitch channel this Sunday against Mr. Lennon. I keep referencing it, but it was a fairly ninth edition S game based on what we know. He had nine Ridge Runners. And yep. they moved and shot without penalty, and then I tied them up with Gaunts. Then they shot through my Gaunts and continued firing last cans at my Exocrines all in the same turn. Yep, it was very, very annoying. Tanks are real.
3: Tanks are very real. Uh, like you, I, I played against Dustin from uh, Stutter Scrub podcast and he was running his nine ridge runners and they blew through the units that i tried to attack them with (laughs) um let's just say i am really liking that sort of dynamic with tanks but um,
2: i was describing it is it tanks in eighth edition they feel like they're huge liabilities unless they're like two points efficient or something like that and then you just spam them tanks in ninth edition with my limited experience so far Feel like they're playing the way tanks are supposed to like they're legitimately powerful they're useful they're hard to mitigate but they're not unstoppable at least not my experience
1: here's i think the biggest change to tanks and the thing that's going to completely blow people's minds and that is when tanks are driving forward to charge into you right holding pieces of the board contesting objectives you know what i mean like they're going to be in the entire game instead of hiding in a corner hoping you don't touch them like
2: Absolutely. Like, John's front line in our game was the Ridge Runners. He was screening with the Ridge Runners. I can't... That's not a thing. At least it wasn't a thing.
1: Yeah. Do you guys think that things like Land Raiders will be back on the table? Or uh, other iconic tanks from history?
3: I have a feeling that they're no longer a point sink if you decide to take them instantly when a little Razorwing flock decides to go and touch it. Um, (laughs) Which... So... I I think...
2: Tanks with the flamers are going to be a lot more viable, like plague burst crawlers, blow drum, well, blow always on, uh, hellhounds, Lehman russes, you might start seeing a battle cannon and double heavy flame responses, just so you can do what you just said, drive around, fire your battle cannon, get tagged, flame your way through it, or start bumping into stuff. I, I'm not going to jump the gun and say the land raider redeemer is going to be good, but it's definitely in the conversation at least where it wasn't before yeah
3: especially if terrain becomes a factor and you can actually hide it and it doesn't just get blown off the table by like the repulsor executioner or whatever that's sitting on the other side of the table or the three repulsor executioners you know and and you can like you know leapfrog it from line of sight blocker to line of sight blocker to just make sure that you know it it gets close so i think there's, there's there's something to be said about that
1: i mean just speaking about the land raider redeemer The kinds of things that you can think about now are like, okay, I can outflank it and bring it in, right? I can give it uh, whatever is it, long-range marksman, so that when it comes in, it gets to shoot at something, and now it's like in the middle of your opponent's stuff, (laughs) running. Shut
2: up! You're stealing all my salamander
1: ideas. Sorry, but you understand what I'm saying, right? Like, it's a whole new world. Like tanks allow you to do. So many different things, and it's they, that exploration is going to be so much fun. It's going to be so much fun, just like thinking about
2: emulators. I forgot about emulators. I'm sitting here building sisters as we speak.
3: Have heavy Flamers. They do, and not only that, but you know, you've got like bald predators that have like super fast movement, or you know, plaguebrush crawlers that now can't be tagged essentially without getting burned to death. You know, there's. I got
2: the big one for you right here.
3: Tyranifex with the acid spray. <laughs> there you go. Tyranid Tyranifex with an acid spray, which I've seen on the table before. However, And it's scary, but now that you can't tag it and stop it from shooting, like it's scary level just went up to 9,000.
2: Yeah. Last, before we move on, I don't want to say that tanks are like broken because you can't tag them. It was still very much worth it for me to throw my gaunts into the Ridge Runners on a one-way suicide mission because it made the Ridge Runners have to shoot the gaunts. Correct. So, you know, there's a lot of play on both sides to this. And then an example of what happened in that game is I had uh a squad of guns. There was like seven or eight left charge into this Ridge Runner. You know, it's three Ridge Runners. And John got greedy. He said, my heavy stubbers on these Ridge Runners are going to shoot these guns. I'm going to kill all of them. And my last cannons, based on the new targeting rules that we were aware of, are going to shoot your x So he actually shot the heavy stalbers and left one gaunt alive and then all those last cans couldn't fire because they were stuck in close combat with the gaunt. So it's a double-edged sword there for sure.
1: Yeah. Okay, so now back to my original question, right? We have talked about all these things, but before we get to the next part, let's just take a quick break to get a word from our sponsors.
0: This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink.
1: All right. So my question to you guys, we've talked about a lot of changes and 42 navigating how all of that. <laughs> I understand that there's a lot that we don't know, but based on what we know, let's hear what you guys think is going to be important for uh, ninth edition list design. Like where, where are you going to start? Obviously you're going to learn as you go, but where are you guys starting? You guys are both very good players. So let's start there.
3: Uh, always take a towel. Always take a towel. <laughs> yeah. It goes with your 42 answer. I don't remember that I <laughs> <years old. laughs> you know i'm I'm glad that anybody who's out there who got the reference, thank you very much. You're very welcome. I continue the joke even though it kind of starts after the forty two okay, um <laughs> why don't you head us off there, Nick?
2: Sure, sure. Uh, I think the answer to John's question is it starts with the board and ends with the control. Um, I think board control is going to be absolutely key ninth edition for a couple of reasons one the board is smaller you simply can't play the let me hide in the back corner of my deployment zone shoot the other guy and then run out on turns four five and six and claim all the objectives and turn it back around that's not going to be viable because your opponent will just outscore the crap out of you part of that is also the way scoring works at least in the mission we saw so far in classical itc that we're all used to in eighth edition there is no difference between holding six objectives to your opponent's one objective and holding two objectives to your opponent's one objective. You score one point for holding, one point for holding more, your opponent scored a for holding as well, two to one. In at least the mission we saw, it's progressive scoring based on the amount of objectives you control relative to the number of objectives your opponent controls. So scoring two to one is only holding one more objective than your opponent. You're going to get a token okay amount of points for that. Holding six objectives, or I keep saying six, holding five objectives to your opponent's one objective, that's a difference of four objectives, or rather two or more, which I believe is the breakpoint as determined by the mission. So you're going to score a bunch of points for that. So if you rack that up over and over and over, you're getting like a lot of points to your primary progressively, your opponent's sitting in the corner tabling you with his Thunderfire cannons, and then he's like, all right, guys, time to move on out. It's turn five. Uh, the game's almost over, but we tabled him pretty much. He's down to just some scraps hiding behind a wall. Let's go get those objectives, and then uh, all right, you scored some points. Turn five, turn six. If there are even six turns, I've heard rumors of random game lanes are just hard. Fixed five turns. Nonetheless, let's assume it's six. Then, oh man, we scored uh, ten primary points in the last two turns, and you're let's see how many points they scored. They scored twenty in the first four turns. So I guess we lost. Great job, boys. Let's pack it up and go home. That's exactly how that's going to go. So being able to, to box in that middle of the board, especially on the
3: shorter table, I think is going to be the, the key to that addition. Board control, board control. Now, if you're taking notes, everyone at home, make sure you double and triple underline that. Do you have
2: any other thoughts you want to add on that card? Of course,
3: yeah. Um, board control is going to be very important. However, what you what I think is going to be very important for Ninth Edition is have a layered approach to your uh, your army list strategy, in the sense that you're going to have to have different layers to be able to go deep into the game. You'll have screening units that can absorb punches or you know create zones of control to prevent your opponent from just going wild all over the table seaboard control you're going to have to have units that are designed to go take objectives but you're also going to have to have some sort of durability to take objectives over the course of um, like defending objectives things like that that could be good saves good toughness things that can hide um, things that can regenerate whatever uh, you're going to have to have those sort of mid board or mid game style units. And you're going to have to have something in there that's capable of counter punching um, and getting and pushing the enemy out of when they come into you. So it's those three main layers that is going to have to happen. You're either going to have to um, go out and get objectives, you're going to have to zone, and then you're going to have to push when people come into you. You're going to have to have something that can like clear the zone from the enemy.
1: So. Uh- I want to share a few of my thoughts. that I, I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, I think I agree with Nick that board control is very important, and I agree with Scari 100%. You're going to want to punch because there's going to be assault armies that are getting in your face, and you're just going to have to be able to punch with them somewhat, right? Because you can't just uh, get run over because that's what's going to happen, I think. Um, but I also think elements, we might see some more elements like land speeders, uh, attack bikes, things that move fast and are relatively cheap to run out and grab an objective um, because it seems like those kinds of things are going to be more valuable in the new missions. What do you guys think about that? Well, we don't
3: really know what the new missions are going to be. Like, If you look at chapter-proof 2019 you can kind of maybe get an idea of what their head process was when looking at different missions um you know and also look at some of the variety in missions from even the age of sigmar tournament competitive like um booklets you know uh, the missions that they use at age of sigmar events are the main book missions and the ones from the general's handbook and all these things and all of them or a lot of them have very different parameters to win or gain points throughout the game that that reward different styles of lists. So I feel it's really going to be about um, knowing what those parameters are that really kind of dictate that.
2: I also think that based on the one mission we've seen, because that's all we have to go on right now for sure, the objectives are scored at the start of your command voice, functionally phase. That's functionally at the end of your opponent's turn. So you have to just hold an objective for an entire turn to score those points. So units like solo attack, like solo lance speeders running out and grabbing objective, your opponent's just simply going to kill them right off. So not very useful there. But they're very good for okay, he's got 20 dudes on that objective um, or near that objective. I'm not going to shoot those 20 dudes off, but maybe I can take a obsec attack bike which certain armies can do hashtag salamanders and drive up to that objective and just steal it from my opponent While that's he's there's no way that attack bike's going to survive through his turn it's going to deny him holding objective come his command phase so very useful for there's going to be units you take to contest objectives and just rob your opponent of points and then you take your brute force on durable units to score your own objectives
3: now we don't know what the secondary um sort of like dynamic is going to be However, they previewed you know, a, a bunch of different like, categories for secondaries, and that as well will also dictate you know, whether or not those land speeders are going to be useful. Because not only can they do that, but they might be helping you score secondary points and or control points, etc.
1: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I want to get back to the original point, Nick, and the reason why I thought that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I thought that I read that you controlled the objective if the last models that were on it, as long as your opponent didn't touch it with another model even if you shoot them completely off an objective you still that person still controls it right that's why i was thinking those models might be useful because it's literally like this attack i like shoot you off this objective and then this attack bike goes and finishes you know takes the objective away from you so at the start of your turn you don't get it but maybe i'm thinking about that wrong
2: uh i you're quoting rules i have not read
3: there's um i know that for example in the combat patrol mission which they previewed. There is a rule specifically stating that if you move away from an objective, it's still yours. So it could be a mission-specific thing. Interesting.
2: Yeah, that, that's a they used to have that as a concept way back in seven. To my knowledge,
3: well, it's something it in called... Age of Sigmar. The Age of Sigmar like is it. like that. If you hold an objective and you move away from the objective, that objective stays in your control until another an enemy unit comes and takes it away from you.
2: Very interesting. Okay, so that's how old Demon Corruption used to work in 7th edition. Demons could corrupt objectives and that was theirs until your opponent walked up to it. Um, that maybe just got abolished because they started from scratch with 8th edition. I just assume they didn't like that as a concept, but that could be really cool. And then, yeah, then you would see things like attack bikes having more play, specifically to just steal objectives your opponent abandons.
1: That was Correct. Just, just my thought process. I didn't know if that would be a thing but it felt like it could be a difference maker in some games that are close.
3: 100%. And it's, and in the combat patrol, I went back to take a look at it. It's a specific mission, special rule called sweep and clear. So, I could see them adding mission special rules to specific missions, depending on like what they want the the sort of like flow of the game to look like. In this case, it's designed for combat patrol, which is five hundred points. So they want you to be able to use all the units in your army to kind of push you know instead of having to like keep a whole unit back in a small game
2: now, to that point, if that's the way it works in like two thousand point competitive match play, I don't know that that means you're going to see people just taking things like solo attack bikes for the sake of it for that role. But if you want to take one detachment, for example, because you're already heavily incentivized to take one detachment, you might now more seriously look at a brigade because your fast attack tax units, the attack bikes, aren't simply just 37 point taxes. They're, however many points they will be, have a purpose of driving around, stealing objectives, and keeping your opponent honest. So you might
3: see incidental value there coming to light. Nice. Yeah, it makes sense.
1: Yeah, just random thoughts I was having because you know, new edition. We don't know what the whole picture looks like, and so I just try to think outside the box. I'm like, what could this really mean? What you know, where could it lead? Um, just for fun. Okay. Do you guys have anything else you want to talk about in ninth edition, or should we move the discussion to Jukari, which we're going to do in episode two? I'm, I'm
2: ready to move it on to episode two, unless uh, Ridvan has any more ideas he wants to share. This. I
3: already jumped into the webway. I'm good to go.
1: Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you everyone for listening to this first episode of the Art of War podcast. Normally we'd be talking about the tactics of a specific list, but because of 9th edition, we thought we would focus on 9th edition for the first episode and kind of what we think about it. And in the second episode, we're going to talk about specifically how uh, Scarry here thinks that Drukari fit into 9th edition and what he's going to be testing, at least in the beginning, based on what we know. Um, and so jump on over to Patreon if you want to listen to that. Become a patron of the podcast. Uh, it's at aow40k.com. And in it's a great value. I think there's like, I don't know, 45, 50 hours of content there for $6 a month. And it's just great players sharing great ideas. And you will really get better at the game by listening to that. Uh, as usual, thank you very much for joining us. This has been the Art of War podcast. And we'll see you guys on episode two. Bye
0: like the strategy discussion you heard want to hear more about the tactics of this list sign up for our patreon at aow40k.com where we go deep into details of optimal play this has been Art of War, a strategy and tactics podcast for Warhammer 40k, hosted by Nick Nanavati and John Demaris, produced by Seamus Ronan. Find us at aow40k.com, and of course, connect, connect. on Facebook. Just look for AOW40K. 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 Till next time.